If you have your Bible, you're going to want to put your finger in two places this morning. We'll begin with a reading of Psalm 54, just the first three verses, but we'll be spending the predominant portion of our, the beginning of our message this morning between the chapters of 1 Samuel 23 through 27. A lot of text this morning, but it's important that we understand the context of what's going on. This summer we have chosen to look at Psalms in the life of David. These particular Psalms that in their superscriptions, those little details underneath the title of the Psalm, tell us a very specific event or situation that David was going through or enduring when the Holy Spirit inspired him to write that particular psalm. And the, the reason why we wanted to do this, and we've spent quite a bit of time in 1 Samuel, and you may be wondering, well, I thought it was a series on psalms. Well, it is. But one of the reasons that we've wanted to do this is to show you that these psalms are not merely the reflection of some religious facade or religious piety of a bunch of people sitting around seeing who can come up with the coolest worship music. This wasn't David trying to get on the CCM charts. This wasn't any people just trying to say how can they move and woo people with the best music. Who's going to come and follow us? It wasn't any of that. These aren't people just trying to be songwriters. This is real life prayers and preaching to souls that were in distress, that were in high mountaintops and valley lows within their spiritual life. This inspired hymn book of God in the Psalms shows us what does a life of worship look like? A life that is marked by pain and sorrow and betrayal, but also lives that is marked by blessing and beauty and hope and glory and celebration. In other words, it is to show you the realness the rawness of what a life after God looks like. So we had to get the context. We had to show you what, where did these psalms come from and what did they do for David in the midst of his circumstances. And so, if you'd stand for the reading of the Word this morning, we're going to begin in Psalm 54. Just the first three verses this morning of Psalm 54. And they'll be jumping right over to 1 Samuel 23 after, but... Psalm 53, verses 1 through 3. Psalm 54, verse 1 through 3, we read, To the choir master with stringed instruments, a mascal of David, when the Ziphites went and told Saul, Is not David hiding among us? Verse 1, O God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. O God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth, for strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. Selah. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated this morning. We're told in the superscription what's going on here. We're told that it's when the Ziphites had came to Saul and told them, is not David hiding among us? So we're going to see here in a bit as we go through 1 Samuel. This actually happened twice. The Ziphites 
who are fellow members of the tribe of Judah with David, sell David out to Saul to get their own personal gain. Every time David goes there to hide because he thinks, hey, I'm hiding in literally the hills of my own tribal group. Surely I'll be safe here. But no, they sell him out twice to Saul. And what's amazing is that in each of those cases, rather than David getting justice against Saul on righteous attempts to murder him, or against the Ziphites who in their unrighteous attempts to try to get rid of David for their own personal gain, rather than each of these times ending up with David getting justice against them, attacking them, getting retribution against them, both of these cases end up with David showing mercy to Saul and the Ziphites. Shows mercy many times rather than getting justice. Now, I don't know about you, but as I read through these accounts and I think through this, there's really one question that permeates my mind. How in the world is that possible? How in the world is someone who's trying to kill you, two times you've got an opportunity right before you, and instead of taking them out, you give them mercy? How does a people that keep selling you out, when you have power and mighty men at your disposal, do you go and not just wipe them out to get rid of the problem? How is that possible? Because when you think about it, justice, vengeance, the desire to get even, to right a wrong that's been done to you, to inflict pain on those who have harmed you is overwhelmingly our default setting. Overwhelmingly, that's the default. Justice, vengeance. I got to get even. I won't let them do that again to me. They will know how much I hurt because I'll make them feel that. Path of mercy, however, not so easy. It's very hard and seemingly impossible in various circumstances to give mercy. How do I give mercy to someone who's wronged me so bad? Yet it is mercy that is an attribute that it must mark the followers of Jesus. Jesus makes this abundantly clear. The New Testament makes this abundantly clear. In His Beatitudes, Jesus says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Notice, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Mercy from who? Mercy from God. Notice, it doesn't say blessed are those who do acts of mercy. It's blessed are the merciful. In other words, mercy is not merely an every kind of like a now and then action that we do for someone. Mercy is an attribute of who we are as Christians. Christianity is first and foremost more about who we are than it is about what we do. What we do should flow from who we are. And blessed are the merciful. Jesus would say in Luke chapter 6, be merciful 
just as your Father is merciful. In other words, your Father has been immensely merciful to you, therefore, you be merciful. You be merciful. And then this amazing text out of James, the half-brother of Jesus. James chapter 2, verse 13. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. That's pretty harsh language. Judgment will be merciless to one who's shown no mercy. But mercy triumphs over judgment. So much in our Christian life, we love, long, and desperately recognize our need for mercy. But how little we want to truly show it. We want everyone to get justice except when it's us. The prescriptions for being merciful in the, in the Bible are very clear. But anybody who wants to be honest with themselves knows that mercy is easier said than shown. Especially when you have been deeply wronged in ways unimaginable. And so this call to mercy for believers begs a number of questions. First, what is mercy? What does a merciful person look like? How does a heart become merciful? You've got to ask yourself, how do I get there? Because in order to be merciful, I've got to become merciful. So something in me has got to change. I've got to have a heart change in order for that kind of mercy to flow from me since that's not our default setting. Should a merciful person always show mercy? What is the relationship between mercy and justice for a Christian in dealing with others? These are questions that I hope we will be able to touch on this morning. Are there any of you this morning that's struggling with mercy? Have you been wronged by someone deeply recently? Have you have, do you have an issue of being compassionate towards those in need? Are there any of you here who maybe the thought of someone or something because of a deep pain curdles your blood, brings anxiety to your heart, sets clouds over your soul, over the thought of having to deal with that again. Maybe it's not an individual, but rather groups of people. Maybe those of differing political beliefs. The things that they stand for, you so despise, and and perhaps rightfully so, that you can't in any way justify acting kind or compassionate towards them. I see that a lot. See it a lot. We've all been there. I speak as one who is the chief of sinners here this morning. Maybe you're struggling with this in some fashion this morning of how to be more merciful. 
This morning, my hope is that by examining three demonstrations of mercy from the life of David between 1 Samuel 23 and 27, and by looking at the prayer that unfolded how he was able to show mercy, what this prayer did to help create a heart of mercy for him in Psalm 54, that we will be able to become more merciful ourselves. To crush out the spirit of vengeance that so quickly fills our soul when wrongs are done to us, and to truly learn how to overcome evil with good for the glory of God this morning. That's really my prayer. Is how can we be a people where mercy is multiplied? The first thing I want us to draw our attention to this morning is found in 1 Samuel 23. We're going to be looking at 1 Samuel 23-27. Some of this just briefly as you've noted on it in the past. But I want us to see the plurality of mercies given in the life of David. The plurality of mercies given. We could have went back further uh, than where we're going to begin with. Because the first thing that I want us to see is, is his mercy to Saul, number one. His mercy to Saul, number one. Because he gives a lot of mercy to Saul. But we'll look at the first time. We'll briefly touch on this because you've already uh, gone through this with Pastor Freddie. But I just want to note on it. But before we do, some context, right? You talked about it last week. David, with mercy in his heart has just went to save the city of Keilah. He's already shown mercy. So I could have mercy multiplied this way further back. But for the sake of time, I helped you this morning. But he's already shown mercy to the city of Keilah. He didn't have to do that. He was putting himself in danger to go save those people from their enemy. And what's amazing is there in 1 Samuel 23, we read that after he saved them, the city of Keilah sold him out. He had just went to save them and spare them when no one else would. And they're the first to tell Saul where he is. So he has to flee to the wilderness of Ziph, which is right out there just south of Hebron, about four miles south of Hebron, just to kind of the, the southeastern part of the wilderness of Judea. And there we pick up 1 Samuel 23, Verse 15, we'll go just through verse 18. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life, and David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horish. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul my father also knows this, and the two of them made a covenant before the Lord, and David remained at Horus and Jonathan went home. So here's the context. David is in the wilderness of Ziph. And what's amazing here is you're going to have two things happening. The people, right, that should seemingly be allegiant to David, the Ziphites, the tribe of Judah, they're going to go to Saul and sell him out here. Whereas the son of Saul comes and strengthens David. So you get this interchange. But the reason why this is important is because the Lord in sending Jonathan, and I want you to know that the Lord sent Jonathan to David, was strengthening David's hand and heart to provide the mercy that he was about to give. How did Jonathan do that? How did Jonathan strengthen the hand of David in the midst of his trial, in the midst of the difficulties that he was facing? He strengthened David's hand by pointing him to the promises of God. You're going to be king. 
you'll be king and I'll be beside you. My friends, when you find yourself in deep, dark circumstances, when you've been hurt and harmed by others, when you've been wronged, when you find yourself in the midst of darkness, you need to surround yourself with friends that point you to the promises of God and not the perils of your circumstances. You need to be reminded who's in control. You need to be reminded what God has for you. Because rather than letting David dwell in the darkness of his present circumstances, God sends Jonathan, a faithful friend, to lift him into the light of God's promises. And if you're ever going to be a person that doesn't let your circumstances overcome your emotions, you need people who point you to the promises. Who in your life is pointing you to the promises of God instead of letting you just sit in the perils of your circumstances. We continue, verse 19. Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds of Horus on the hill of Hakala, which is south of Jeshimon? That's pretty specific. Now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire to come down, and our part shall be surrendered him to surrender him into the king's hand. And Saul said, May you be blessed by the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. Stop right there for a second. Right? Pastor Freddy's noted this. I just want to briefly touch on it here. So you have the Ziphites, these people from the tribe of Judah, who are selling out their own kinsmen. This is where you start seeing those shadows of Christ come into play. Right? The Lord sold out by His own kinsmen to a king of their own choosing. We have no king but Caesar. So his own kinsmen, the Ziphites, sell him out to Saul. And notice Saul says, oh, thank you. You have shown such compassion on me. But what were the Ziphites doing? They were leading him to go and sin. Once again, beware your counselors who you think are speaking favor to you when they're just leading you to sin. Be weary of those who simply are leading you to what you want rather than what God wills. Because what you want, what you think might be a compassion to you, might actually be a great judgment that God's leading you to. Because your wants do not align with His will. So be very weary if you surround yourself by a multitude of counselors who only tell you what you want to hear. Because they might likely be leading you to a path of destruction and judgment. He said, go and make, make, sure, more, yet, go make yet more sure. Know and see the place where his foot is and who has seen him there. For it has told me that he is very cunning. See therefore and take note of all the lurking places where he hides and come back to me with sure information. Then I will go with you. And if he is in the land, I will search him out among all the thousands of Judah. And they arose and went ahead to Ziph ahead of Saul. So notice here, Saul doesn't want to do any footwork. He's saying, listen, I, I, I need, you got to get this clear. I need the best information. I need you to be recon. You're going to be scouts for me. Tell me exactly where he's at. He's pretty cunning, I hear. Now that he's heard, he knows. He's been chasing David through the wilderness for a while now. He knows how cunning David is. And so he wants to know specifics. Once you get that information, come back and bring it to me. 
We continue. They rose and went to David, uh, went to Ziph ahead of Saul. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon in the Arabah to the south of Jeshimon. And Saul and his men went to seek him. And David was told. So he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. And when he heard, Saul heard that he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon. So here we've got the situation, right? Saul is, is pursuing David. He knows where he's at. David's been sold out by his own kinsmen. He's hiding there in the cave in the rock of escape there, which led to that beautiful psalm in Psalm 57 and other places. Psalm 63 last week. And yet, here we get it. David is in this place, this hiding place in this cave. And it just so happens that Saul, in wanting to relieve himself, stumbles into the cave of escape. 1 Samuel 24, verse 3 and 7. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. And David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward David's heart struck him, because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord. The Lord's anointed to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with his words and did not permit them to attack Saul. Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. So here, here's the opportunity for vengeance. Here's the opportunity for justice, right? Is David wrong in all manner of self-defense from taking the life of Saul? Well, you may say, well, Saul wasn't fighting at that time, so that was what made it wrong. But David doesn't see it that way. David takes off the corner of his robe there and immediately he says his heart's pierced. His heart is convicted by what he's done. Because why? David is not acting in accordance with the will of God. He's acting with his own desire for vengeance, his own desire for justice. He's tired of running. He's tired of this man who's constantly hurting him. He wants to be done with it. It's about him that he's doing this. And the moment that he acts for his own good, his own purposes, his heart's convicted. My friends, vengeance feels good in the moment. It feels right in the moment. It will be immediately satisfying. But the sorrow cannot be taken back when it has been walked completely through. But praise be to God, the Holy Spirit protects David from this moment. He does not allow him to inflict the fullness of justice here. Rather, David understands this is what God's going to do. If I'm going to the throne, God's going to put me there. It won't be by my own means. God will put me on the throne. God will remove those who come against me. God will do it for His glory. I will not let it be said, David ascended to the throne by his own power. David is there by the glory of God by the will of God, by the purposes of God. He shows immense mercy. And Saul recognizes this. Verses 8-13. through After David arose, he went out of the cave and called after Saul, My lord the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth, paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men 
who say, Behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand into the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and I did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. David says, listen, if I wanted to kill you, I would. Stop pursuing me. Stop listening to those who would lead you to wickedness. David realizes that sin begets sin. Out of wicked comes wickedness. If I kill you, if I do that for that, if I just make this coup seem to happen, that's what it will be. It's going to produce more conflict, more wickedness. It's going to start a civil war. It may feel good in the moment, but it's going to lead to more pain in the end. More sorrow in the end. My men are going to have to fight five to one the army that you have. Sin will beget sin. So think about that. And think about what David is teaching his men in this moment. About the importance of mercy. About the importance of following God's will. The paths that you take, the paths of righteousness that you follow, are leading example for others to see that righteousness may be multiplied rather than wickedness. So David says, I'm not going to do it because I know that out of wickedness, out of the wicked comes wickedness. It's just going to multiply. It's just going to get worse. Saul realizes this, verse 17. He said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I've repaid you evil. That's mercy. It's mercy. And you've declared this day how you have dealt well with me in that day. You did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. In other words, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. This is a remarkable story, but it won't be the last. Seemingly, David and Saul make a, uh, what seems to be a partial covenant here. Saul goes back to his place says, hey, I'm not going to kill you. I'm not going to pursue you anymore. You've been righteous. I'm not going to do that. I'm, I'm gonna, I, I appreciate your faithfulness, your mercy towards me. And so things seem to go well for this point. Saul seems to have it in his heart that I, I realize that, wow, David's actually not trying to take my throne. And so I'm not going to pursue him. So he goes back to his home. And David stays there in the wilderness. David has shown immense mercy to Saul, but it won't be the last time that he does. David realizes that not showing mercy just leads to further sinfulness. When we repay evil with evil, we only get evil. So when when you're told, well, we need to choose the lesser of two evils. No, you don't. When given the the option between the lesser of two evils, choose neither. You're different than the world. 
You're a reflection of Christ to the world who showed mercy to his enemy. You and me. If we ever want to see a world where righteousness prevails, it must start with us. If we continue to give the world the world's ways, what are we offering that's different? But in the midst of this story, things seem to go well. But once again, David finds himself in a situation that he is going to have to show mercy again. We see this in 1 Samuel 25 with Nabal. David shows mercy to Nabal. So at the beginning of, of 1 Samuel 25, we see that Samuel, the prophet Samuel, dies. Now, that's going to be a big deal, and it's, but it really won't be resignated until the beginning of 2 Samuel. But this is the Lord's prophet, the one who anointed David. So you've got to imagine what the news of that does to David's heart. David is hurting over the news that the prophet who has pointed him to the Lord, anointed him for the Lord, is now gone. The one who anointed him is gone, and he's still out in the wilderness. Is this stuff really going to happen that was promised to me? Because everything around me seems to be falling apart. Saul's reigning well. Everybody seems to like him. The people of Hecla or Kila who I went to save, the Ziphites, they like him. Everyone seems to like Saul. They want to follow him. The man who anointed me, who actually can say that I am the anointed of the Lord, he's gone. Everything seems to be really starting to tumble around David. And then this little incident happens that could have put David in a place of darkness. So let's... Read here what's going on. Verse 2 verse uh, through 5 of 1 Samuel 25. There was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal and the name of his wife Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent 10 young men... And David said to the young men, go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. So we'll stop there. So here we go. So they are in the, the wilderness of Maon now, a little bit further south, uh, south where he was in the, the wilderness of Ziph, because he doesn't want to be there anymore. So he goes to the wilderness of Maon, and there David, we find out in a moment, has been kind of serving as a protector over the flocks there in the fields, keeping out thieves and wolves and things like that. And really... I think you see in the midst of this, David's great love for shepherding. David loves shepherding. He has an affinity for shepherds. And so he is providing protection with his men there for Nabal's flocks. And he hears that Nabal is there. Uh, he is now shearing his sheep. Now, in this culture, when there was a shearing of sheep, a, kind of a picture of the removal of burden. There was a feast that was celebrated after this was done. Like when you brought in a harvest, the shearing of the sheep was marked by a great celebration, a great feast. So David sends men to go to Nabal to basically tell him, hey, we've been protecting, we've been looking after your sheep. Can we come and partake of the feast? We are famished. We do not have much for ourselves here in the wilderness. Can we come and partake of the festivals and be fed by you? So that's what he's sending them to. But we find something out about Nabal here. Nabal's a cruel man. Nabal in Hebrew literally means fool. 
And he's going to live down to his name in this regard. And so David sends men, can we come and feast with you in celebration of the shearing of your sheep? We see what happens here, uh, beginning in verse 9. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who's David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men who come from I do not know where? So David's young men turned away, came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on a sword. David also strapped on a sword. And about 400 men went up after David while 200 remained with the baggage. All right. So remember, David's hurting. David's already hurting because of the news of the loss of Samuel. And all he wants is some food for his guys. He just wants some food for his men. He wants to go partake of this celebration, these feasts, just to have something good. It's been nothing but bad for David. He wants to go partake of a feast, of a festival. He just wants to be a part of it. He's been helping out protecting this guy's flock. And this guy, Nabal, says, who the heck's David? He knows who David was. And literally then goes on to say, David's just a rebel. There's plenty of rebels around here. Who is he that I should give him water and food and meat from my shears? Only the guy who's been protecting your flock. That's who. But David hears about this. And the first thing he says is, strap up, boys. We're going to war. We're going to go kill every man in that household. And that's what's his intent. We'll see in a moment. Now you may think, this seems silly. It seems so small, doesn't it? That, that, doesn't that seem like such a small thing? To want to, to cut someone off for? We do it all the time. We cut people off for the littlest things. You know why? Because was already hurt. And hurt people hurt people. When you're already hurt, when you already feel like everything's come against you, it just takes one thing. One little thing. And whoever unfortunately is on the receiving end of that is going to get the full blunt of your wrath. Even if they did so little to cause the pain beforehand. You need to check your heart sometimes. And ask yourself, is my reaction to the wrong done to me actually coming from a place of really of justice or just from hurt? Just from pain. Because pain will lead you to doing terrible things to justify. But someone would come to stay David off. To keep him. To be an agent of mercy. To keep him from sinning. Because had he gone and wiped out Nabal and all the men there, just because they didn't feed him, I promise you, that would have been a sin against God. No matter how justified he felt in the moment. But God sent him, just like He did Jonathan, He sends him another instrument of mercy. And it's an unlikely person. 
It's the wife of Nabal, Abigail. We see this in verse 17. Now therefore know this, or excuse me, verse 18, I apologize. Then Abigail made haste. So Abigail hears the servants come and tell her, David's on his way. He's coming with an army of men. He's going to kill all of us. So Abigail acts. Then Abigail made haste, took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five seahs of parched grain and 100 clusters of raisins, 200 cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, go on, me befo- go on before me. Behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under the cover of the mountains, behold, David and his men came down toward her and she met them. Now David said to her, surely in vain I have guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. God do so to, my, to the enemies of David and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, Oh, on me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal. For as his name is, so is he Nabal. His name is his his name and folly is within him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives because of the Lord, the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand. Now then, let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant. For the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God and the lives of your enemies. He shall sling out from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord, according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation in himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. Abigail has come to plead on behalf of her husband. A husband that we've already been told is cruel to her. He's cruel to her. He harms her. He's cruel to her. If ever there was someone who thought this was finally the justice she deserves, it would have been Abigail. Finally, God's going to rid me of this horrible man who's so terrible to me. But that's not what she does. Now she goes behind Nabal's back because here's the truth, my friends. A wife is called to lovingly and faithfully submit to her husband. But not when that husband is leading her to judgment and unrighteousness. We are called to submit to the civil authorities unless they are causing us and calling us to walk in paths of unrighteousness which will bring destruction to us. And when that happens, that call of submission, 
then must be removed in order to obtain life and obtain hope and obtain mercy from God. Because if we don't, if we do submit to that wickedness, we're going to be led to paths of destruction. So we must go against the submission in that moment. But notice, Abigail's lack of submission was met by a greater intercession. Though she did not submit to Nabal in this moment, because to submit would have meant death, she never stopped interceding for her husband. She never stopped interceding even for the one who was cruel to her. So I want you to hear something today. This is true for us also. Whether it's a cruel and unjust leader, a boss, a parent, are we praying more for mercy to befall them in salvation than we are demise and judgment? There's a reason why 1 Timothy 2 says, pray for all of those in power. For God delights that all men obtain the salvation of Jesus Christ. You may not be able to submit, but there should never be a time you're not able to intercede. And that is the greatest way you can ever show mercy to someone who's cruel to you, is to intercede on their behalf for mercy. That is the greatest gift you can ever give anybody, is intercession. She prayed for the man who was so cruel to her. And he would be spared from David. And more importantly, David would be kept from sin. Who is in our lives like Abigail that serves to calm our passions and point us to righteousness rather than to just say, yep, you should kill him. You deserve it. He's bad. He's a terrible person. She doesn't continue to propagate the frustration and anger that's boiling in the heart of David. She seeks to comment. She seeks to even say, if you're mad, be mad at me. This is the essence of intercession. Is that you? Are you someone who can speak in the lives of your friends to calm their passions when they're enraged and hurt? Or do you just stoke the fire? Are you one who longs to live as a rebel and to undermine those who have hurt you and been cruel to you? Or do you genuinely seek to intercede for them? God, change them, save them, protect them, that they might be saved. Because I want you to know, a greater David is coming with wrath. Who are you interceding for before Him? Who are you bringing and laying them before the feet of the greater David Jesus? That when He comes, He might give mercy to them rather than judgment because of their foolish ways. Oh God, let us be like Abigail's. And it keeps David from being a sinner. It keeps him from having to know that he killed this sheep shear just because he was angry that he didn't get invited to the feast. It kept him from guilt. And that is the great beauty of the Holy Spirit, my friends. And that friend, we want, it, it preserves us from the guilt that our passions will lead us to. 
your passions unchecked by the Holy Spirit, unchecked by the Word of God, will only lead you to pain and sorrow. But David here gives mercy. Verse 32, And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord God, the God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me truly by morning, there had not been left to Nabal as so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him. And, she said, and he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice and I have granted your petition. And Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. And in the morning when the wine had gone out of Nabal, and his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal. And has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned evil to Nabal on his own head. Then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. Now he does this because in this culture, to take someone as your wife after this situation would be to receive the full inheritance of what was left over. So now David receives the full flock and vineyard and everything like that. This was a common staple in practice in this time. But notice... Not one time did Abigail come with that intention. She came with intercession. She came for mercy. And David showed mercy. And what did David receive? David received mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. God was the vindicator. God, David didn't need to take justice into his own hands. He didn't need to take vengeance into his own hands. He didn't say, I'm hurt, I'm angry, I'm mad, this person has wronged me, I need them to feel what I feel. Because God will take care of it. God will either change their heart or He'll give the justice in the right time. But God's going to do it. David said, you kept me from sinning and from trying to work out my own salvation. I love that. How often we try to take matters into our own hands when the constant call of God is surrender. It's surrender to Him. It's not yours to take. It's His. David spares Nabal, but God, God gives the justice. I love what John Chrysostom, the great ancient church preacher, said. Mercy imitates God and it disappoints Satan. Satan would want nothing more for us to act in our passions. But God wants us to show mercy. And then lastly, the final time, he spares Saul a second time in verse 26. So once again, verse 1, The Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah saying, It's not David hiding himself on the hill of Akala, which is on the east of Jeshimah. Alright, here we go. Number 2. Ziphites again, they're coming up against Saul. So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph and 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. So think about this for a second. Saul was doing just fine. Saul was not pursuing David. 
He was good. Wasn't there like a, a brief peace treaty there? He wasn't all. He was good. And yet, all of a sudden, here are these Ziphites coming along to once again fuel the passions of Saul to stir him to sin. I'm telling you what, one thing that these passages from 1 Samuel 23 to 1 Samuel 26 should be teaching you is who you surround yourself with matters. Who is stirring you up to passions of wickedness or to pursue righteousness? What thoughts keep coming back into your life, in your heart, that want to stir you back to the madness that's already been dealt with? Because it may not just be people, it may be these terrible invasive thoughts that keep causing you to rekindle that which was already done, already taken care of, already reconciled. And yet you're stirring it back up again, over and over again. That's not mercy. And it shows that you never forgave. These Ziphites constantly draw him back and so he goes after him. We're told here, verse 4, David sent out spies and learned that Saul had indeed come. Then David rose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. David saw the place where Saul lay with Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army. Saul was laying within the encampment while the army was encamped around him. Then David said to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Joab's brother, Abishai, the son of Zeruah, who will go down with me into the camp of Saul? And Abishai said, I'll go down with you. So David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment with his spear stuck in the ground at his head, and Abner, who was his bodyguard, and the army lay around him. Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please, let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him. For who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him or his day will come to die or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the jar of water away from Saul's head and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon him. So here we go. Sparing number two. I love this. Because here, David finds out that they are camped out. And listen, the Lord has once again provided the perfect opportunity for what would seem to be justice. My friends, don't be shocked when God puts you in a very clear place where He will test to see whether your heart is merciful or not. Where justice will feel absolutely right. But mercy will be the answer. So David goes down to the camp and he takes his nephew, Abishai. And he gets there and there is the spear right neck into the ground. The symbol of Saul's power. The spear. And Abishai, once again, just like the men before him, David, this is it. This is it. You gave him mercy right the first time. So now is the time for justice. Let's do it. And let me do it. And I'll listen. I know you're not really liking killing him, but I'll do it cleanly. One blow. That's all it'll take. And I love what David says. 
No. If he's going to die, the Lord will do it. The Lord will take him away. The Lord will remove him. Now, what in the world has David just endured to see that God will do that? Nabal. The experience says of David's life has shown that he can show mercy. Why? Because God time and time and time again has shown mercy to him by vindicating him against those who come against him. I don't have to do it because I know God will. I've already seen it. I don't have to walk with this sense of vindication because God will do it. And what he is doing in that moment is generational discipleship to his nephew. Do your children see a vindicating, angry group of parents who are constantly talking about others behind their back, seeking to put them down, seeking to harm others, seeking to be scandalous or talking about things, telling their kids, oh, shh, shh, don't say that when so-and-so's around. Then you shouldn't be saying it. If you're afraid your children are going to pop off in the church or someone else because you're afraid they're going to slip up and say something that you said, you shouldn't be saying it. What are you teaching your kids? Vindication, get even. Are you showing them mercy? Like David showed Abishai. David spares him. And he has Abishai take the spear, the symbol of God's or symbol of Saul's power, and the water source, a symbol of Saul's life. And he takes them. In other words, I've spared you. I have refused to take your life and your power. And David and, and Saul hears of this. And we see this in verse 17. Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is this your voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, my lord, O king. And he said, Why does my lord pursue after servant? For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now therefore let my lord the king hear the words of his servant. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But it is, if it is men, may they be cursed before the Lord. For they have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, Go serve other gods. Now therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea, like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. Then Paul said, I, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. And David answered and he said, Here is the spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and take it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. Then Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed them. So David went his way and Saul returned to his place. So here, once again, Saul realizes the immense mercy that he's shown David. And he asked David to do something interesting. He tells David, Come back home with me. But I want you to know what David does. Verse 27, or chapter 27, verse 1 through 4. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over, and he and the six hundred men were with him to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. 
And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, to David with his two wives, Ahanoam of Jezreel, and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. Why do I find this interesting? And why do I find it important to bring up today? It's because this. Mercy does not negate discernment. Mercy does not mean things got to go back the way they used to be. Because sometimes that's foolish. David has learned Saul's repentance is not from godly grief. It's from worldly grief. He's just upset that he's got caught and gotten spared. Feels really bad about it in the moment. But he's already shown me the quickest little thing will inflame his desire to come after me again. I can't be where he is because I know he's going to keep hurting me if I stay nearby. David showed mercy, but he also showed discernment. He knew when a relationship was not good to maintain. That's not unforgiving. That's not being unmerciful. Sometimes it is a greater mercy to get away from a situation because you know as long as you're there, that person's going to continue in sin. The conflict is going to continue to be there. Problems are going to continue to arise. Mercy sometimes says the best thing that can happen is we've got to, we've got to go separate places because the relationship isn't safe to going back to what it once was. Mercy does not negate discernment. You can be merciful to those who hurt you and harmed you without necessarily saying that the, the context of a relationship needs to pretend like nothing ever happened. That would be foolish. So you can be discerning and still be merciful. They are not... Like mercy is not gullible. That's what I think a lot of people reason that keeps us from showing mercy. It's because if we think that that means that I just got to pretend like nothing happened. That's not mercy. Mercy says, I know what happened, but I won't repay you for that. I'll show you good instead. And go on about my way. I'm not going to go somewhere and just keep talking about how bad you were to me. I'm not going to go somewhere and just keep pretending like it was just this horrible thing. I'm not going to bad mouth you to other people. I'm just going to go my separate way. Because that's what's best in this situation. Mercy does not negate discernment. You can be merciful and forgiving without putting yourself back into places or situations that have continually caused you a pain. And in the midst of this notice, David never once avenged himself against the Ziphites. He never once killed them, attacked them, destroyed them for their constant betrayal against him. And what's amazing is we find out from Chronicles that the Lord actually used the Ziphites to be a mighty army to protect Israel from their enemies in the wilderness. In other words, because David showed them mercy, God would one day use them for His glory and purposes. And this is why we call for mercy on those. Because you never know how God might use them. Because of the mercy that you showed. So that's the plurality of, of mercies. And real quickly, I just want to...
close by looking at the pathway to mercy through Psalm 54. Let's walk through it together. What could create such a heart in David to be so merciful so many times in spite of the fact that he was wrong and hurt and betrayed? I think we find the answer in the pathway to mercy giving in David's psalm. Psalm 54. First thing that we see, we see the midwife for mercy giving. I get that title from Matthew Henry who said that prayer is the midwife to mercy. We read in verse 1 through 3, O God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. O God, hear my prayer, give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. So here, David has these Ziphites who keep coming against him. But notice who David asked to provide the deliverance. God, you do it. You save me by your name. That is the, the fullness of God's attributes. You save me by the fullness of all that you are. Vindicate me by your might. That is all that you do. So save me in all that you are. Vindicate me in all that you do. David wants the Lord to do it. David is surrendering this entire situation to prayer. Prayer takes matters out of our own hands and it puts it into God's. He says, you got to do it. And if you want to be, be able to give supernatural mercy, because that's what it is, got to put it in God's hands. you got to do it, God, because I can't find it. I'm angry and I'm hurt and I can't find it. you got to help me. You've got to save me from sin, save me from harm, because people are hurting me and I don't know what to do. you got to do it, God. Prayer reminds our hearts that God is bigger than our problems, bigger than our oppositions, bigger than our trials, bigger than the wrongs done to us. Notice the desperation in the prayer. Oh, hear my prayer, God. Are your prayers, are your prayers that desperate? Do you cry out, God, you've got to help me. I need you. I don't want to act this way. I don't want to act with vengeance and anger. I need you to crucify these passions in me that want to act out. Notice the specificity of prayer. For strangers have risen against me. Do you, think, do you not think that David knew God knew what was going on? Of course he did. And yet when you see these psalms over and over again, notice the specificity by which David prays. You know, God wants you to be specific when you pray. For which man asks his father for a piece of bread? Does his father return with a stone? How much more loving is your father who is in heaven, Jesus teaches. In other words... You don't need to ask generalities if God doesn't know what's going on. Be specific in your prayer so that you might receive specific answers like David showed time and time again with specific acts of deliverance by God. We want God to get the glory. Mercy is supernatural. The only way to show it is with the help of supernatural means. Prayer. That's why Jesus taught us, when He taught us how to pray, Matthew 6, 12, forgive us for our debts as we forgive those who debt against us. We forgive our debtors. Notice, Jesus assumes in the prayers that you're being merciful. That you're being forgiving. What was the motivation for mercy given? It was complete trust. Verse 4 and 5. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. 
The only way you can have motivation for mercy giving when you've been wrong is to know and trust God will take care of it. God's my helper. God is my vindicator. God is the one who upholds me. When you trust that He will provide perfect justice when all is said and done, you can be merciful. You can be mercy giving. You can always side on the side of mercy. You will never go wrong in this life if you side it on the side of mercy. I want to be clear today. There are times for justice. We'll talk about that in a moment. But you will never go wrong if you side it on mercy. And it got used against you. God knows. And that's your trust. He will make it right. Psalm 121, 1-2, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Psalm 37, 5-9, Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him. And He will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in His way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. Hear that today. For the evildoer shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. you got to wait for Him to do it in His time. Final justice is not yours to give. Yours is to give mercy. Justice is the Lord's. Mercy is yours. Romans 12, 19-21 Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Literally, you'll... You'll burn his conscience. Why is this person that I've been so bad to being so good to me? Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. How in the world can you do that today? It's through complete trust in the Lord. And when you have to act in vengeance and, 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 and going against people, all you're saying is, God, I don't trust you to be just enough. I don't trust you to be good enough in your own time. I don't trust you to vindicate righteousness. I've got to do it on my own. You're saying that you're a better Lord than He is. A better judge than He is. Don't let it be so. Then we see the heart behind mercy given. Verse 6a. With a free will offering, I will sacrifice to you. So what's the heart behind mercy? It's sacrifice. It's full surrender. What was the free will offering that David offered to the Lord? It was Saul. What is a free will offering? It was the offering that went above and beyond that which was prescribed in the law to give worship to the Lord. And David says, I will make the choice to lay down my passions, my desire for justice. I'll lay it down and surrender it to you. That's what you got to do. If you want to be able to overcome evil with good, you have got to fully surrender your heart and your passions and your desires to the Lord. David saying, I won't take matters into my own hand. I surrender my future, my protection to all to you, Lord. He was doing what Jesus taught in Matthew 9, verse 13. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. 
Why do I say full surrender? Because you better believe showing mercy costs you something. To show mercy means that you inhibit some of the realities of the justice. That you are taking some of the blows in the place of justice. And there's no greater picture of what this looks like than Jesus on the cross. If you don't think mercy is going to cost you something, then you've got no salvation in Christ. That cross doesn't mean anything to you if you don't think mercy is going to cost. It'll cost you more than you know, but it is infinitely worth it because of what Christ did for you. If you refuse to pay some of the cost to show mercy to those who've wronged you, then you've got no place in the salvation of Christ. Because you do not know mercy if you can't show it. You have no concept of the mercy you've been shown in Christ if you can't offer it to those who've wronged you. Lastly, we see the mindset for mercy giving. I will give thanks to Your name, O Lord, for it is good. For He has delivered me from every trouble and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. What is the mindset for mercy given? Reflective gratitude. You've got to have a grateful heart. You've got to know who you were apart from the Lord. You've got to know that apart from His mercy, you are dead and you are done for. Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 5, and you are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. If you can so easily withhold mercy and compassion to those around you, it just shows me you don't know what you've received in Christ. You don't have a clue of the beggar that you are. And yet, day after day, the Lord pours out mercy on you. Lamentations 3, 22-23. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Every morning, when you wake up and you breathe, you are breathing in mercy. And yet, you won't breathe out it to anyone. Your heart overflows with the mercy of God. But as Freddie said this morning, in that overflow, we've become silos rather than sinduits, these reciprocates of, 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 of mercy. We just store it up for ourselves. We're not conduits of mercy. We don't give it to no one. And if that's you, you don't have any mercy. Because you cannot know the mercy of God and not give it to others. I'm sorry. You cannot know the compassion of Christ and have a hard heart towards others. Bonhoeffer once wrote, Once a man has truly experienced the mercy of God in his life, he will henceforth aspire only to serve others. 
How can you have a mindset that's constantly geared towards showing mercy? You better remember and have gratitude for the mercy you've been shown. So here's our closing takeaways today. I've gone over, I'm sorry, but here's our takeaways. The mercy of God to us creates merciful hearts within us. The mercy of God to us creates merciful hearts within us. The mercy that God blesses is itself the blessing of God. It grows up uh, like fruit in a broken heart, a meek spirit and a soul that hungers for God to be merciful to us. And in receiving that mercy, we now pour out in mercy to others. Because here's the truth, my friends. No one will ever sin against you more than you've sinned against God. And you will never have to forgive anyone else more than God has forgiven you. You need to believe that today. When you look at those on the news, championing, walking down the streets, shouting depravity, celebrating depravity, those who are going to clinics to murder their babies, when you see all of the wickedness and schemes that are taking place and being our champion in our world, the only thing you should do is drive you first and foremost to gratitude. Because apart from the grace of God, that's you. You hear me today. That's you apart from the grace of God. And secondly, you intercede. You start praying with abundance. God save them. God give them the, the knowledge of the truth and, and, and of salvation. Lord, change their hearts. Bring revival. Give me the means and the message to be an instrument of your mercy to them. Allow me to be a, 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 a microphone of mercy rather than a dictator of justice. Our natural tendency is to act in sinful, selfish ways. But only when we know and truly have been transformed by the mercy of God can we have the mercy of heart to show it towards others. Secondly, prayer is the pathway to mercy when it's hard to give. I want you to hear me today. I'm not undermining anything anyone's done to you. And if you've heard that this morning, that's the devil who wants to turn your heart off from hearing this. I'm not undermining for one second the pains and sorrow and hurt that you've dealt with. But if you ever want to follow through with being merciful, you better pray. Because prayer is the key to unlocking mercy when you can't find it. So if it's hard today, pray. If you're struggling, pray. Only He can give to you what you do not have within yourself. Pray. Third, if we want to be merciful people, we need people in our life who will calm our passions and point us to righteousness. If you want to be a continual practitioner of mercy in this life, you better have people in your life that point you to that. Because if you surround yourself like Rehoboam did with a bunch of counselors that only tell you what you want, you'll constantly fall slave to your passions. You'll constantly just fall, fall into the path of clickiness. This is my clique. This is my group. This is my tribe. This is my people. And we'll do anything to keep you out. And I want to surround people who push me up. Call me, instead of calling me out, who point me to mercy, who are willing to say, listen, I'll fall on the sword if it means making it right. Surround yourself with people that will calm your passions, point you to righteousness. Fourth, 
The call to be merciful neither negates the practice of discernment nor the place for justice. There is places for justice. Hear me. Within given spheres, there is a place for justice. Within the home, right? You should discipline your children. There is a place for righteous justice in your home when disciplining your children. In civil authorities, right? Judges should justly sentence criminals. They should. They should be just in those matters. In the church, if there is someone given to habitual sin that is undermining the testimony of church and bringing shame upon the name of Christ and fails to repent after the first two steps of church discipline, it must behoove the elders of that church to remove them in church discipline for the sake of restoration. There is a place for justice. There is a place in business. If you are an employer and you have someone who is harming other employees who are doing wicked work, who are being lazy and idle, there is a place for justice in laying them off. But hear me. There is no place where a Christian gives justice that shouldn't be guided by our mercy. So yes, we discipline our children, but we don't destroy them. We instruct them in it. And we teach them mercy in the midst of it. Yes, we lay off our employer, but we our employee, but we better be making sure we were paying fair wages. Maybe we give a fair severance package that allows them to get up on their feet. Maybe we are a judge, but we provide opportunities to provide places where there can be rehabilitation. Right? There's places, the way in which that even when we give justice. As a Christian, it must be sprinkled with the light of the mercy that we've been called to show. And then five, this is the final one. The justice of God protects us from ever thinking that our showing of mercy was in vain. Maybe you've shown mercy and it's, been, it's backfired on you in immense ways. Maybe you've shown compassion just to find someone have used that to go and hurt themselves or do something with. And you think, I'm never making that mistake again. I'm never going to give out some spare change to somebody. Let's go use it for drugs. I'm never going to help that person in need. I saw what they did to me when I did that. Never again. Don't have that heart, beloved. Because the justice of God guarantees that your mercy never goes in vain. You can always side on the side of mercy because final justice is His. No one will ever get to heaven and God say, you know, you showed mercy and that, look what they did with that. That was bad on you. It won't happen. So side on the side of mercy. Waver to that side. If it gets used against you, God knows. And God will make it right. But I won't have to answer for what people did with the mercy I showed them. I'll have to answer for when I didn't show it. So knowing that God is just allows you to know that no mercy, compassion, forgiveness you ever show in this life was ever in vain. But for the glory of God. My friends, I pray that you will be a merciful people. 
I pray that the mercy of Christ will characterize you everywhere you go. And that when people ask, how can you be so merciful? That your only answer is, it's because God has been merciful to me. Who do you need to show mercy? Make it right. Make it right. Let's pray. Lord, help us today. This area that's so hard, that's so difficult. Areas that we so often struggle with. <clears throat> help us be more merciful. Help us be more compassionate, more forgiving. But help us also to have discernment. To know when is the time for mercy to be shown and when is the time for justice to be let had. Give us discernment to know how to re-establish our relationships in light of pain that's happened, in light of issues, in a way that protects both people. Lord, give us hearts to pray for those who wrong us and hurt us. Help us be exactly who you call us to be. Help us be who you are for us, and that is mercy in every way. God, let us not forsake the mercy you've shown us, but let us be conduits of mercy towards others. Lord, we need you. And when we show mercy and we are hurt and when we are wronged in response, let us look to you and say, Lord, we will wait for you. Through the storm, through the muck, through the mire, we will wait for you. You are good and you are just. And we know that nothing that we do for your name's sake will ever be in vain. So God, help us be people who multiply mercy in a world that knows nothing of it. That are salt and light to Christ. God, help us. We need you. We need you so much in this. We thank you for your mercy. And I pray today, God, if you're stirring on the heart of a person here who doesn't know the mercy of Christ and this morning recognizes their need, I pray that you will absolutely draw them to Christ. That they would look to the cross and see the manifold mercy that you have lavished upon them in every way through Christ Jesus and that they might receive it. They might receive it and be immersed in your mercy and then go be agents of mercy to the world around them. Oh God, help us today. We thank you where you have kept us from sinning and led us to mercy. Do it again. Do it every day. That we might glorify you in all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.